0: 21 of chapter 3, and it begins there saying, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of, the, of Gentiles also, since God is one who would justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Let he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Amen. Well, it's always hard to know how to title a text. Uh, I would probably title this at this point, The Glory of God's Justice. And we'll see hopefully by the end why that's so important, The Justice of God. Um, and the glory of it in the midst of this. But um, the second problem in dealing with a text like this is uh, to lose sight of the context of where we've been. And so by way of review, we have to remember that Paul is writing for the purpose of preparing this church for an in-person visit for the sake of strengthening an existing body of believers. He's not writing... Uh, primarily for an evangelistic uh, purpose. He is writing to strengthen the existing church and to be mutually strengthened by them upon his visit. And this letter then is all preparatory so that that can happen. And that really opens up this text to where it wouldn't say anything different if we took it and just looked at the words and studied them, but it says something different with great depth and breadth concerning the purpose of the letter itself. And I find it to be extremely helpful to revisit that uh, so that we understand that we're talking to a church of believers and there is evidently um, a great risk of not dealing with the Jew who at a certain point, the Jewish believer, many of them were sent away out of Rome under Claudius, and Claudius had died, and you're going to have many of these Jewish believers return into the church, and you're going to have Jews and Gentiles in the same body, worshiping together. And there's a great temptation for the Jews, as we've seen, to be proud about their faith in in respect to being over the Gentiles. So in order for Paul to show up and bring the strengthening ministry that he desires to bring by the power of the Gospel. He has to deal with certain matters. And the big matter he's dealing with throughout this letter is the issue of the equality between the Jew and the Greek when it comes to the Gospel and salvation. And he doesn't destroy the identity of the Jew nor the priority of the Jew that has been uh, clearly stated in Scripture, but he puts the Jew in His proper place, which is in the same place as a Gentile who is really under Adam before the Gospel changes him. And this is going to be meted out more and more throughout the letter, but especially here we see when it comes to the Gospel, it's vital that we see all men Jew and Gentile, have the same exact need. One of the most famous verses we hear quoted over and over again in evangelistic tracts is all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. But that wasn't written for evangelistic purposes. It was written to prepare a church to be strengthened. And that makes a great difference. When we look at this text, <clears throat> we, um, we begin also to see um, this contrast the letter had begun in verse 17. If you remember back in verse 17 and 18, the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And now you have here the contrast. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. There could be something more uh, different than the wrath of God now contrasted by the light of of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The wrath of God against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of all men. Meaning Jew and Gentile. He's not just saying Gentiles are sinners. He's saying Jews and Gentiles are all sinners. And let us be clear, oh man, speaking to the Jew, you're included in this. And he spent time having to work this out because he knew more than anyone else, someone set apart for the law, now set apart from the Gospel, that is going to be a, a difficult time understanding that Jew and Gentile in this are in the same need. They're under the same wrath apart from the goodness and glory of God. What advantage is it to the Jew? The Jew had the Word to tell them and to show them their sin. The Gentile did not. The Gentile didn't have the Word. The Gentile didn't have the ability to read it by the book and uh, repent of their sin and trust, trust in God. The Gentile could see the stars, could see the moon, could see the creation, could see the creatures. And the Bible clearly says that creation itself is a demonstration, an adequate demonstration that we ought to be grateful to God. But instead of being grateful, they were ungrateful. And that led to many sins, it led to many gods. A lot of a lot of the uh, <clears throat> shows out there and books and things will teach the false idea that in these native places it started out with many gods. No, it, it didn't start that way. Sin led to having many gods. So you have many gods. Ingratitude. I'm sorry. Ingratitude led to having many gods, many sins, and then ultimately with the Jews, many laws. God's law wasn't enough. So you've got to make more laws. I'd much rather be under God's law any day, having given eyes to see and understand how good God is than to be under man's law. And there's really no, there's no in-between on this. Either there's, there's the theonomy of God, meaning you're under God's law, or you're under man's law autonomy, and God wants to God, I mean, man wants to be uh, the one who's in control down to the very self-governance of our souls. We want to be rulers. We want to be autonomous rulers of everything. And that leads to many problems. It leads to hurt and pain and difficulty and war and calamities, all at the heart of one man who's dissatisfied with God, not grateful to God. That's where it begins. And <clears throat> so we, we might be able to say with many theologians throughout the years that What's the problem with the world? The problem is me. We our our problems start with our own hearts divided and ungrateful to God, and when we become grateful to God, it is a, a a miracle of grace that our eyes are open to see that this world was made by this God, that we no longer rebel against this God who made everything for our joy and His glory, and we see Him in the right light and. And let's just say to start with, we wouldn't see that if Christ didn't come and take on human flesh to reveal God to us. Isn't that right? John John says that who, is, who has seen God and who has revealed Him, but the only God who is at the Father's breast, He has made Him known. So I think at the close of the year, we have to be just reminded that the, the issue of us even being able to see these things is the grace of God has come down to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And we now see. Otherwise, we would be blind like the rest of the world. But we see these things because of <clears throat> what God has given. Now, <clears throat> when the righteousness of God has been manifested, the question is, what is that righteousness? And it needs to be clear. Right, the righteousness of God is, is not justification. It is It is what one receives in justification, but uh, it's a similar word. But righteousness here, the righteousness of God here deals with um, the thing that we most desperately need. And we want to be not only self-rulers, but self-saviors. And as a result, we want to lean on the righteousness of man. We want to lean on works of the law. Uh, whether it be our law, or even if we, like the Jew, take God's law and begin to add laws to it, we, um, we take something holy and we begin to say that God needs help in saving sinners. And if anything happens in these, in these words, what it does is it eliminates all room, just like it says it eliminates all room to boast in anything we do or come up with, um, that we be content with what God has come up with. And we would be content with who God is and satisfied in Him. And He has revealed to us that this righteousness has been manifested apart from the law. Now, that doesn't mean He's against the law because what we see, Jesus taught, I didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill. So, don't miss what it says after this. Paul says, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Paul saying the same thing Jesus is saying the law and the prophets always always <clears throat> excuse me have borne witness to what this the right interpretation of salvation there hasn't ever been another way for mankind to be put right with god except that god would do the work and that man would by faith look to god the law and the prophets never taught that man should seek Salvation through what he does. The law and the prophets, according to Paul, have borne witness to this righteousness of God, which, as Luther puts it, must be received by men and not achieved by men. And then he explains the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. And this is a monumental statement because it states that there is no other way of salvation except receiving this righteousness for all men. That all must receive this righteousness that comes from God. And that is by or through faith. And I would comment here simply, it's not your faith that saves you. It's Christ who saves you. And it's the instrument, through faith, you receive that righteousness of Jesus Christ. So you don't want to put faith in your faith. You'll, you'll be constantly worn out um, thinking, well, I don't have enough faith. This is the great era, right, of the charismatic religion. That They would tell people that bodily or or spiritually, they don't have enough faith. And the object becomes focusing on the faith and not focusing on the object of the faith. Faith can fluctuate, but Christ doesn't. Christ is the one who gives faith. The Word of God strengthens our faith. And so you can see how this would play into Paul's purpose of what he's getting to is you have to get these categories right to be able to open your mouth wide and receive the Gospel. And then it goes into that we were familiar with. For all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God, but don't stop there, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. If you're outlining this, what you would find is we see a big, the big word. We, didn't co- we covered righteousness the week before, but we're going to be covering redemption to begin with. Um, we'll go with propitiation, and we'll work down through the line. But when we, we read these words, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, what does it mean? It means that all men are poor or destitute of glory. They're wanting. If you you pick up Psalm 23 that we look at tonight, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Um, It literally is, I shall not lack. And so it is, believer. When you receive Jesus Christ, you don't lack. You have everything you need. There's no no, uh, lack of what you need. For salvation you've received all of it and God has saved the sinner no longer being sh- coming short of the glory of God because of what Christ has done but prior to that you have all have sinned. Sin has made people destitute of the glory of God and when we speak of the glory of God we know it would refer to the holiness of God and the knowledge of God through Jesus Christ. And it says, and are justified by His grace as a gift. And it doesn't become more clear than that. Salvation is entirely a gift given by God to sinners. Undeserving sinners. The word justification now comes in. And that word theologically means this. That you have been forgiven all your sins. And, not just forgiven Declared righteous, not because of your own righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So it's both those things. You've been forgiven all your sins. There's no more sin penalty pay for, but there's more than that. You've been given all of his righteousness, his life that he lived, the death he died. The the full payment has been paid. And he gives you, he imputes to you, the righteousness of his own account. And he takes the robe of your sin, he gives you the robe of his righteousness. And it's a permanent, forever thing when that happens. It's not something that can be undone because this gift is an eternal gift. And eternal gifts don't pass away. It's a gift that's given forever. It's not something that can just be taken off of you. This is a joy that he says the world doesn't give. This joy he gives that can't be removed from you. This God gives in, in a way that man could never give. God gives in a way of foreverness and eternality. He justifies the sinner. And the word redemption here means that you have been, at one time, you have been owned and like a slave a slave to the world, a slave to the laws of the world, a slave to your own laws, a slave to sin. And being under sin as a master, you had to be redeemed. You had to be uh, purchased. And there are all kinds of crazy theories about this idea of the purchase. Some people have speculated saying, well, who had to be paid for it? <coughs> and... Um, it just seems, I don't, I don't know, I think we, we sometimes just lose our minds in seminary classrooms. It just seems to flow out from these places to where we have to uh, split the hairs minutely, uh, ask questions about everything. But let's go ahead and deal with that just for a moment because I know it's brought up. And let's be clear, Satan was not paid for anything. Um, God owns this world. And His redemption is something in which He purchased by the blood of His Son. Satan is a created being. He's not a creator. And therefore, uh, the speculation that goes beyond Scripture of a payment being made to Satan is simply uh, is simply something that's unhealthy for the Christian to, to indulge in at this point. What we should be focused on when we hear the word redemption is pictures that the Bible give very clearly of redemption. Like, for example, when you read about in the Exodus, about the redemption of the children of Israel, or you read about in the law, like in Leviticus, where you see uh, laws set down for redeeming something or someone, or you read about perhaps in that story of um, Ruth and, and uh, Naomi and Boaz and the redemption there of that family. Those are the types of pictures. The, it's really a love story. Redemption we see show up in the, in the greatest stories that are written in the world because they're really borrowing from the greatest of all stories, of the Gospel. Redemption has been set forth in this, um, in this story of all stories, and we borrow from it everywhere. Um, this redemption is in Christ Jesus. I don't think it it speaks only of union here. It's speaking simply that um, it is Christ who redeems. He's the Redeemer. He's the Lord. He's the Creator. He's the Judge. And He's the One that brought about redemption by His blood. His blood paid for our souls, for our bodies whole. And His blood was an adequate payment for us on the cross. And so this text is about the cross. So we have justification. We have redemption. Whom God put forward. And this is vital here. Who worked salvation? Who works out? God put it forward. It was God's idea. God, before, before all creation, had decided to redeem a people and He puts His Son forward in history to pay the price to redeem us. This was not man coming up with this. This was the God of the universe. It was God's idea to send His Son and to punish His Son in the place of sinners. And and this leads to the next thing. And and we want to be careful here. If you're working through this text and you're explaining this text yourself, it's, it's not as helpful. You're just putting, okay, justification, redemption, and you're jumping to propitiation as if they're separate things. Notice this is a chain link. It's going to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next. It's a progression of idea. Now we get to really um, the most magnificent thing of the gospel that should come and hit our hearts so deeply, and that is the bearing of God's wrath against us on a cross. Um, you don 't need to wait for that to have happened. Um, a lot of people have ideas and have created all sorts of of views on the future based on that they they want to have an idea that they don 't have to experience suffering or wrath or anything in life based on a misunderstanding of the idea of propitiation you don 't have to wait for what God did here. He did this for you if you believe in Jesus Christ, He bore all the wrath against you. On a cross, and it's finished. That's that's the key. He wouldn't have cried to tell us, it is finished," if the wrath was not paid and absorbed by him alone. This was not in the this was not in the resurrection, or even in the burial, or even uh, in the ascension. This was in the cross. This happened. The cross is the demonstration that God who so loved the world, gave His Son, and His Son bore the entire wrath of God on the behalf of His elect people. And you are His elect people if you believe and trust in Jesus Christ. And all who will believe in Jesus Christ are His elect people. And that wrath is paid for by Jesus on the cross. We have no other place to look to have the surety and the confidence that there's, no, there's nothing more to pay. The idea of the Roman Catholic purgatory is unfounded here when there's a cross that Jesus died on and absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf. Because if He absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf, there's no more, no more to be born. And so, propitiation is a word that has been wrangled with again theologically over the years. Um, <clears throat> it's important to keep. You say, why is it wrangled with? Well, because the word propitiation actually is a word that in classical Greek literature refers to um, averting the wrath of the gods, the Greek gods. Now, the Greek gods are a lot different than our god. The Greek gods, one first of all, aren't real. Uh, they're, 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 not, they're made up by men. And uh, so these Greek gods, at best, demons, right? But at best, you could go there. But the idea of these Greek gods is they were very uh, temperamental, right? They could be mad at you one day and happy with you the next. And so what the, what the gods, the idea there to propitiate these gods, you would offer, you know, food. Um, well, man, man can only come up with what he thinks will satisfy the gods. So he might come up with food and fruit. And it might go as far as sacrificing a, a beast or even a human in order to somehow appease, but it never appeases. And the God itself is one who is is very capricious. Like You can't ever depend on what their mood is going to be. And so they could just lash out all of a sudden in wrath and anger uh, with no principle about it. Very unstable, very unpredictable. That's how these gods were. And so they came up, with ways to propitiate the wrath of these Greek gods. How do you deal with the wrath? And this has been the case of man-made religions since. But this word, though, is the word that means that. It means to turn the wrath away, the wrath of God. And so many people will say, well, I have a God of love. He's not a God of wrath. But see, this love and wrath go together. And a little help um, from Horatius Bonner. um, As I was reading at the end of this week, I thought captured, captured for me what I'd um, just read a a quote to you, if I can pull this up real quick. And I think it just captures, it captures the picture that I'd want to convey from this text. And he says this, he says, Jehovah is well pleased with his bruising nay took pleasure in bruising him speaking of christ never was messiah more the beloved son than when suffering on the cross yet jehovah was well pleased to put him to grief though the consciousness of communion was interrupted for a time when he cried why hast thou forsaken me and yet yet there was no breaking of the bond there was wrath coming down on him as the substitute, but love resting on him as the sun. Both were together. He knew the love even while he felt the wrath. Nay, it was the knowledge of the love that made him cry out in amazement and anguish. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So I think that this captures the beauty of the picture that while there was wrath, there was love. And there was a cry made in one respect as our Lord suffered the wrath of God, but He never ceased to be loved by God. In fact, there couldn't have been a greater demonstration of the love of God in all of time than the cross from God's perspective. And this is the perspective we must have, is that, God, first of all, is a God that's not unpredictable. He is a God who is completely perfect in all His attributes and balanced. And while He is always loving, He is always just. And He is always good. And He is always gracious. And He is always compassionate. All of those things are of God at the same time. This one, the chief of all beings, the God of the universe, is not like the gods that man has made in this world. This God is a God who is Lord and Father and King and Judge. And so this propitiation then takes on the aspect it is an act of God because God put forward. This isn't man offering up fruits and vegetables and beasts or even humans. This is God offering up His Son. And this, is, this God being so level-headed and so sound and so perfect and so wonderful, gives His Son to take the wrath away not just for a moment until the next day when His wrath is incurred again. He did it once for all. So you don't have to get up the next day and wonder, is there something more I must do now or something that must be done so that wrath is dealt with. No, you as a Christian now look to the cross and you know it has been finished. And is a cry on the cross that it's finished should settle that for every believer throughout all time. That what took place on that cross, the wrath of God was fully absorbed. So there's never another offering that has to be made in order to take away that wrath. So, Propitiation is a word that theologians have fought to preserve, that we need not lose. I agree with the theologians throughout history and the Reformation especially. But this was something that was even, even taught even by Roman Catholicism at some point. Propitiation was still there in the Latin Vulgate. And so they used that word. So to, to take that word out... Um, as we've seen, many today endeavoring to take away this idea of the wrath propitiating offering of sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is even more sinister than Roman Catholicism. They they dared not touch this word, but yet they didn't apply it in their practices of the priesthood. Propitiation teaches that it's all paid, and it's paid by His. Blood And it was done by God setting it forth as the one who offered up His Son for us. And it's to be received by faith. It's not received by your works. It's not received by doing enough or even knowing enough. It's received by trusting in the sacrifice and what He's done. And this is all a gift. And He says why? He says this was to show God's righteousness. So you have a beginning of understanding the glory of the justice of God because it was all to show God's righteousness. And this is so vital and so very much glossed over in this text. It is vital. This, this sentence here is understood. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, you heard about His wrath, but then you all see His patience. In His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. This leads to a great problem, doesn't it? If He passed over the sins of Abraham, and He passed over the sins of Isaac, and He passed over the sins of Jacob, and anyone of the Old Testament, and said you're forgiven, there's a big problem. And that is, how can God forgive sins without sin being paid for? And we've learned already, it was paid for. He's saying this is why. This is why it all happened. I'm explaining why it all happened. It happened to glorify God's justice. He was able to forgive sin back here. And He passed over their sins. Until the fullness of time came where His Son paid for those sins as well as ours. And that's what the text is leading to as it says, in His divine forbearance He passed over former sins it was to show His righteousness. We have periods of sentences to keep grammatically correct in English. But the way Paul writes, it just keeps going. It's like paragraph is the sentence. Like It'll drive an English teacher crazy. But, <clears throat> but if you keep that in mind, all of this is just continuing to flow. The, it was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be the just... Meaning he's, he's a just judge to punish the wrath and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So you could get away with, you could get away with justify. You could say, well, I'm justifying these men in the Old Testament. They're forgiven. But the immediate question would come into mind is, what kind of God are you who will say someone's forgiven, but there hasn't been a payment and as we said, we read the text together today. The blood of bulls and goats didn't take it away, did it? It could never atone for it. Why was that there? Okay, that was there to point to Christ. Because the ceremonies of the law and all the law, all the law always pointed to the need to believe in the Messiah to come. Every ounce of it was meant to point us to Christ. The Christ who would come and pay. And when they would place their hand upon that animal. And they would kill that animal in the place of the one who sinned. And that animal would bleed. And the blood would be sprinkled on the altar. And the animal would be burnt as a burnt offering. show the wholeness, the completeness of that sacrifice. It wasn't because this animal was taking away all sin. It wasn't because this animal was able to atone for sin. It was that this sacrifice was pointing people to a time when it would be. But showing greatly the need in the time sparing. There'd be a forbearance of God to pass over sin. So sins are being passed over. Men are being justified. But there's no basis of that justification if Christ doesn't come and pay for sin. And so Paul's explaining this is how God could be just and justifier. What we're seeing in the gospel, mainly here from God's perspective, is is the justice of God being vindicated. That's what Lloyd-Jones actually called um, his most famous sermon on this text, was the vindication of God. The gospel was about vindicating the righteousness of God and showing Him to be just by paying for sin Himself through His Son. And so He... uh, In fact, there's a commentary on this. If you go to Hebrews, Hebrews 9, and verse 13, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. There's the idea, of the redemption through the blood of Christ, that this sacrifice has the power for good works in the life of the believer at any point in history. Because the payment has been fully made and God has been vindicated as fully just in what he has done. I think there you have there you have the explanation as to how God can how God can truly forgive us and how he could truly give us his righteousness is because what Jesus did. In other words, we're not just wishing this to be done. We're not We're not just going through a ritual anticipating it to be done. We are accepting what Jesus did actually was the completion of our salvation. Uh, So it's such a glorious, wonderful thing. Never ever to take lightly of what he's done to justify us. That is to forgive us our sins and declare us righteous. And So this leads to the three purposes of why this is all important. One, we see the major purpose, and if you could just say one thing, it is to vindicate the justice of God, to glorify the righteousness of God. That's the main thing why this matters. Because God is to be honored in all the world. He is a holy God, and He is to be honored for the God who does all things well. And the gospel should be the, the, the first effect of the gospel on our hearts and lives should be an admiration an adoration, um, just an absolute um, love for what this God has done so well, perfectly. So that there could be no there could be nothing brought against His elect. It is God who justifies who is to condemn? This, this would be the, the overall thing that we would get. Number two, And maybe as a result, kind of like the progression we were talking earlier, it's not separate things, but one thing leads to another. And the next thing is, it removes all boasting. It wasn't you that put this forward. It wasn't you that came up with this. It wasn't me. It was God. God did all of it. And so none of us, Paul's saying, none of us can come and begin to boast in anything except in God. And that's a theme of Paul's ministry, isn't it? That you would say, I boast in nothing except or save the cross of Jesus Christ, my Lord. Nobody has anything to boast in, Jew or Gentile, except God. And so he says that. What becomes of our boasting is excluded. And he says, what kind of law? Here's some tricky, heavy lifting. What kind of law? He says, law of works? No, but a law of faith. Now, there's two ways of looking at this. A law of, of works versus the law of faith, which very reputable teachers that I've benefited greatly from. uh, Bob Godfrey, for example, takes the view that you see them in opposition. And he's one of the big reasons why I wanted to jump into Romans. I just thank the Lord for his teaching. Uh, But some take it that way. I'm not taking it that way. Um, I follow Cranfield's notes, which is the um, reputed scholar of Romans. If you read anybody... Um, dealing with Romans, Cranfield is is the man, but also many of the Puritans and such have dealt with this issue. And it's what I said at the beginning. In other words, the context here indicates that we're not talking about two separate laws. And again, I hold this loosely because you can explain this both ways. So it's not a hill to die on, but I think it helps us make sense of the text that he's not talking about two separate laws. He's talking about the law rightly understood from the beginning the law always the law always is a law of faith <clears throat> let me explain the way i understand it when when the children of israel were brought out of egypt and they were given the law it wasn't that they were given the law so that they would be redeemed they were given the law because they had been redeemed that makes sense so when you when you have already been brought out of slavery And purchased by God by the blood symbolizing a blood to come of the lamb on a doorpost. You've been delivered. And the law is then given for you so you might live in accordance with God's ways and be blessed. That was the original giving of the law. And the problem was, and Paul says this elsewhere, the law wasn't bad. The law was pursued not by faith. That was the problem. It was pursued as if it would earn or merit something. and this language at times, you see Jesus and Paul and others play into, and they say, okay, keep all the commandments, right? But if you're going to keep the commandments, you have to pursue God by faith. It's always been a law of faith. It's never been that you would work your way to heaven. Nowhere in Scripture, no law in Scripture was ever given forth in order to make people believe they could earn their way to God. The total opposite is true. When you go to Babel, trying people trying to earn their way and build something for themselves or their own glory and their own worship, and God again and again is teaching the same lesson: man cannot make his way to God on his own, and that's why he had to send his son. So I take this as the law of faith is the law. The law given to the Jews, they should have known even better than anyone that this law was all about trusting in God because they could not keep it. And it says here, so that eliminates boasting, for we hold that one's justified by faith apart from works of the law. And in the coming chapter, What what Paul's going to do that gives me reason why I believe this is the right interpretation of the text is he gives the example of Abraham and David, whom we know. Abraham, just take Abraham. Abraham in particular is going to be shown as one who was justified by faith alone. Okay, before the law and for those after the law, right? All of that, he is the quintessential Father figure of the Jews, and he's going to be used as an example to prove this very point. The law was always to be pursued by faith. That's the way Abraham pursued. That's the way he was justified. He trusted what God said. Now, there's no room for anybody, Abraham or anybody, to stand up and say they had something more than another to justify them apart from Christ. He rejoiced to see Christ's day and was glad. So that's always been the case. The law is always to be something that's pursued by faith. And then it says, is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, the Gentiles also. So he reinforces what he's been saying since God is one. So we have glorify God's righteousness to bring about humility in our lives. There's no such thing as a proud Christian. We have nothing to be proud about other than our Lord. And then three is to show the simplicity of God. The simplicity of God we covered in James, right? The argument of faith versus works. The argument of God being one way and another way. You can't piece God apart. God is all the things. Love, justice, goodness, mercy, compassion all at the same time. And you receive His wisdom. You receive His goodness, His mercy, His justice. All those things. So it is here. He says, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we overthrow then the law by this faith? By no means. We we uphold the law. And so the purpose foremost is to vindicate who God is in his simplicity. And that is, if God is one. If all of his attributes can never be separated from another, he's always these things. He is at the same time wrathful against sin and loving to sinners. If he is always these things, um, you can't also separate that if he has so loved the world, Jew and Gentile, you can't give a different way of salvation. This was the era of dispensationalism seemed innocent because they had all the charts in order to make it sound good, but it was actually a great error and heretical if you go back to its original inception. Um, dispensationalism today really has kind of taken on and borrowed different theologies from covenant theology, but dispensationalism back to your Schofield type Bibles that separated things out in seven periods and made a certain way that the Jews could be saved in one way and the Gentiles in another is absolutely heretical. And so you can't... And why is it heretical? Because God is one. The simplicity of God removes any theology as being orthodox that does not unify the Old and New Testament as having one way of salvation with one people of God under one Lord. And so that simplicity of God shows up again and again in statements like the Shema. God is one. How could you love Him with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength? <clears throat> How could you love this God um, with an with a undivided heart if He is not first an undivided God? The only hope for you to have peace and unity in your own individual heart is because there is a God who is perfectly without contradiction in His own heart towards humanity. The only way that you can have unity in a home is because there is a God in heaven who doesn't have a divided heart or divided interests. Who doesn't play favorites and is not partial to any. The only way that you can have unity in the church or in the world or in the state, at any point or anywhere, the only way wars can cease is because there's a God who's completely unified in His own being. And He is without contradiction in all of His attributes. And so this is a vital doctrine again and again and again. The justified, whether circumcised or uncircumcised, are justified the same way, and that is through faith as a gift. <clears throat> One more purpose as to why this matters, progressing to the very end, is do we overthrow the law by faith? And he says, by no means or contrary, we uphold the law. What is he saying? That word upholds the same word when it says when Jesus stood at resurrection appearances is the word to stand. It's like him saying we stand with the law. He's just putting the law in the right interpretation. The law always pointed to this. You don't have a gospel without this law. You can't separate the law from the gospel. You must distinguish them. But there is no understanding of the law uh, of the gospel without the law of God that actually made it so that Jesus came and He had to suffer the penalty of it. And He did fully, fully for us. And at the end of the day, we don't say how great man is. We say how great God is. How unlike man is God and how much if we're ever going to be anything of men it's going to be because we look to that God. Do you want to have a, a heart in life that has some unity to it, that's not so schizophrenic? Paul understood what it was to so things I want to do I don't do the things I don't want to do I'm doing. He's wrestling with the flesh. He's working with this. He says I want to be like God. I want to be I want to be have His heart. That's David was called a man after God's own heart. He wanted a heart that's undivided like God. You see salvation in the gospel when it's meted out and explained in redemption and justification and propitiation and all these things, it doesn't make you at the end of the day say how great you are, how great men is, or how great any organization is. It says how great God is in His kingdom. And then to think that He has put you in that, it only stirs a humility and wonder and gratitude. Gratitude gives a solution. Genuine, true gratitude to God gives the solution to dealing with many gods and many laws and many sins. So while the wrath of God is real from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man that leads to all those things, the solution is a gospel that brings a gratitude to this God, the Creator of all. It destroys all those things over time. And He who begins a good, good work in you, church, he will bring it to completion. If there's a beginning of that struggle, praise be to God, the humility has taken heart and you realize how how being a beneficiary of this is something you're so undeserving of and you're so grateful that God has brought you in to know Him and to have the light of the Gospel in your life so that you know the future is something not to fear, but to walk with by faith. And the law is not something that becomes an enemy anymore, but it becomes a guide And it becomes something in which you love with David. And you say, oh, how I love your law. We stand with that law. But nobody can ever stand with God's law who has not first had Jesus stand for them in the Gospel. And I hope that makes sense. Let's stand together. Father, thank You for Your grace. And thank You for this beautiful text. Thank You for... Inscripturating it through your servant Paul, and thank you for the opportunity to proclaim just a little bit of the truths in this text. To join with, to join with just giants of exposition who, throughout history, Lord, you have spoke through to explain these terms that are so much bigger than us. So help us understand enough of it today that it would lead to humility. It would lead to worship of you. It would lead to an appreciation for your law. It would carry out the purposes you've set forth. That we may close this year in gratitude to you, God, putting to death our sins, making no false gods, Our heart is an idol factory, Lord. But we know gratitude will just push it out. Gratitude for You, the one true God. And we can stand. We can stand the assembly of the righteous because of what Christ has done. And He always stands for His church. And so, Father, we... We stand today amazed at the gospel of Jesus Christ and we give you glory. As we go to this table as a group of believers that has been called here in this place to be a church, that you have granted us an assembly, an institution here on earth that will be an everlasting one, to be part of a, a family that Belongs even to an eternal heavenly family right now. For there's only one church. And to be able to represent the commonality and the belief and the glory and worship. Of what's going on in heaven is just an amazing gift. So as we come to this table, Father. May it be an expression. And an affirmation of our belonging to you and to each other, and to the church triumphant in heaven. As we take of these things that represent the body and blood of our Lord, may they be to us a sweet Savior, reminding us and applying to us the benefits of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, in whom we believe. We pray this in his name. Amen. May you come.